Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity that we have as people to be here. Thank you for the opportunity that we have as believers to not only be here, but to be here together and united in you. We pray, Father, that you would use these moments that we have, use the moments we have already had to glorify your Son, to glorify your name, so that we would continue to be men and women, fathers, mothers, children, who honor you. It's in your amazing and holy name we pray. Amen. So I've had a different prayer for myself this morning than I've had most mornings that I've been here so far, and that is that my voice would work all morning. So yesterday was the UP swimming finals, and, and we have a bunch of kids connected to the school or to the church who are part of that yesterday. Um, I was as loud as I could be, and my watch frequently told me, you are in a loud environment, please leave. <laughs> so, so there was a lot of yelling, and this morning I realized I hadn't done any talking, and then I tried to speak at one point, and I was like, oh wow, this, this could be a long morning. So that is a different prayer than most times, I've, or most mornings that I've had, but it's a good reminder to me that even if my voice were to just totally fail, even if I feel like I can't make it through the morning, it's not really that terribly relevant because this isn't supposed to be about me and my voice and my abilities. It's supposed to be trusting Christ to accomplish his goal and his purpose and his people. Using me potentially as a mode for that but it was a good reminder to me this morning. So we've already read part of this Ephesians 4 passage, and we're, we're making a big shift in Ephesians now because it's sort of like a moment where somebody said, I've told you everything you need to know, now go and do it. I can't help but think about, for, for those of you who are parents, I was looking around this morning while I was standing in the back and there were multiple little, little, little children. One of them actually wearing something on her head that it was like a little bandana-y thing. My kids never kept any of those on their heads. Nothing that went on their heads stayed on their heads regardless of how cold it was outside. That was a different, that's a different thing. But the first time you get a kid, okay, that's a weird way to put it. <laughs> adopted children, it does feel a little bit like that. You, you got children, right? But the first time Allison gave birth, Isaiah was born. I'm all over the place. This kid was born. His name was Isaiah, okay? How it happened, not relevant. Anyway, we were in the hospital, and the nurses took him, and they did all their stuff, right? And then for the next, like, Whatever number of hours or days we were there, and they took care of this child. When Allison needed to sleep, she could sleep. They took him. They did all this stuff. And then there came a moment where they handed you this kid, and they said, good luck. 
It's not exactly what they said, but it's a little bit what it felt like. They're like, we've told you everything you need to know. You've never done this before. Eh. Take them home. You'll be all right. They're not as breakable as they look. And that happens to every parent. There is a moment in there where you've heard everything you're going to hear. All of the knowledge that you need to have has been given to you and then you have to go and actually do it. It's an incredible shift. A terrifying shift. But an incredible shift. That's where we are in Ephesians. Paul has identified for us all that we need to know. And now, now we are supposed to do these things. There's been a bunch of things about our identity that we see in the first chapters of Ephesians. We find out just quickly, we find out that we are adopted, chosen by God. We find out that we've been not only chosen, but we've been now given an inheritance. Not only have we been given an inheritance, we've been brought from death to life. Not only have we been brought from death to life, but we've been given grace and redemption. Not only have we been given grace and redemption, we've been given an identity in Christ. We've been given his name. We've been given everything that we need to succeed in the mission he's given us. That is different than succeeding in the methods and modes of this world, but he's given us everything we need to succeed for the mission he's given to us. So now, because of all of that, Paul says in chapter four, I therefore, because of all of that identity that you've been given, as a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as we were called to one hope. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above, far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles and prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love." 
So he says that as a prisoner, prisoner of the Lord, because of the identity that we have, we are to do something. We are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that he's given to us. Seven times in the book of Ephesians, Paul references this walking how we are or are not to do it. We're to walk in good works out of chapter 2, verse 10. We used to walk in transgressions and sins in chapter 2, verse 2. We're called to walk worthy of our calling, to not walk futilely in our minds as the Gentiles do, to walk in love, to walk wise, not walk unwise. Those are the ways just in this letter that Paul references that we are to walk, to go about life. Now that word walk is important. It's a present tense verb and we've talked about this before, but we will continue to talk about it every time it's relevant. A present tense verb is a verb that has an immediate action with ongoing results or continued action. So it's not something that happens now and stays now. It's not something that happened in the past and stays in the past. It's something that happens now. I am to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. But now I'm no longer at that time. That was 20 seconds ago. Now I am to now walk in a manner worthy of my calling. See how it never ends? It's always happening right now. I am always supposed to be walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which I've been called. Well, what is the calling to which I've been called? It's the identity that we've been given in Christ. It's all the things that we talked about out of the first three chapters. It's the redemption, the identity, the inheritance, the life. All of these things that we've been given, that is the calling to which we have. We've been called to a higher level of living but, but we have not been called to a higher level of living so that we can feel guilty about not achieving it or guilt others into doing it. And, and this is a huge shift of Christianity from every other religion or religious perspective. And that is this. We are given grace to start the journey. We are given an unmerited, unwarranted gift to start the journey. We then are given an unmerited, unwarranted gift to continue the journey. If we were to look at Galatians chapter 3, or yeah, Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, what we would see is this. Paul's writing, he says, Oh, foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you this only. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Obviously, by hearing with faith. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, having begun by a gift of grace from God to you, are you now being perfected? By the flesh, 
by your efforts, by your abilities, by your obedience? Are you being perfected by this? He says you'd be a fool to think that you are. But yet, many of us, myself included, at times we move through our Christian life acting as though it's now all about how good I can do. Forgetting that the start of this whole book, forgetting that the start of our whole identity was in grace, not in ability. But we look at ourselves or we look at others and we say, you are good enough or you haven't done well enough. It's like the the phrase out of Saving Private Ryan that pretty much ruined the movie for me. At the very end, I forget who the characters are, but the one who's about to die to save the other guy says, earn this. And it's not how it works. You can't earn something that's greater than what you can ever hope to get. And that's what we do. We look at each other and we say, now earn this. We can't earn it. We can, however, respond to it. And out of that which is now inside of us, let it come out. James chapter 2 says this. James 2, verses 14 and on. It's an incredible passage about about what is expected. And he says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? That's what starts this whole section. Can a faith that says it's real but shows nothing of itself, can that save a person? Get down to verse 17 and he says, so faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. What that means is important but must not be misunderstood. If you have faith and you don't have works, James's whole argument is that you don't have faith. Not that your works save you, but that your faith isn't real. If your faith is real, it will show itself by what it does. Down in verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. If you don't have faith or works, it shows that your faith is dead. It doesn't mean that you're earning it. It means that your faith wasn't real. And so as we look at this whole idea of walking in a way worthy of the calling, we have to keep in mind that it is telling us an expected result of the reality that is inside of us. Not... Now earn what you've been given. And as long as we have those backwards, if we feel like we're trying to earn what Christ has given to us, we will never rest in the grace that he's provided. Conversely, if we say, now it doesn't matter what you do, we've ignored all of Christ's command to obey him, to imitate him. Peter writes that we are to be holy because God is holy, perfect because God is perfect. Why? Because we want to emulate him as our God, as our Father, as our leader, as our Savior, as our Lord. But we can't get our motives messed up. Or we'll have it backwards. 
I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. That sets us up. The question is, how do we do this? Right? How how do we make that happen? What does it look like? What is supposed to be the result? Well, this week and next, we're looking at this same passage Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. Today, we're going to look at what it means to walk, which we've already started, what that walking looks like, and the result of that walking. Next week, we will cover how to get there, because the first part of this chapter talks about what walking is. The last part of the chapter, or section, verses 15 and 16, tells us what that will look like, the result of it, And in the middle has a whole section on then how we get there. And the how we get there is vitally important, but we have to understand where we're going before the how to get there really takes effect for us. We have to understand what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of our calling before we can understand how to put effort and wheels to that to get the result. So what does it look like to walk in a manner to which we've been called. We do it with humility, with gentleness, with patience, with bearing with one another in love, with being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's a lot there. Topically, you could take an entire sermon and talk about each one of those facets of what the walking in a manner worthy of our calling is. We're going to go through some of this. What does it mean to walk with humility? Let's go back to Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Paul writes, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought. But think of yourselves with sober judgment or humility, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought. That's humility. We frequently get humility to say, think of yourself lowly, but that's not what humility is. Pretending that you're here in ability, right? When really your hearing ability is just, what's well, a different way to get attention? And I know that sounds weird. You go out and you tell somebody, oh, I'm really not very good at horseshoes. I don't know many people who are good at horseshoes. That's a good example. I don't even know many people who play horseshoes. But you tell somebody, I'm not very good at horseshoes, and then you throw the horseshoe and you get a ringer five times in a row. I think that's what it's called. I'm sort of making it up as I go. I think a ringer is where you throw the horseshoe and it hits the pole and it rings around it and it stays connected or something like that. If you play horseshoes and you do that five in a row, somebody's like, man, you're really good. You knew that, right? But to pretend like you're not good at something when really you are good at that something, that's a way to have other people tell us how good we are at it. I know that sounds weird, and I can't imagine anybody but me would ever do it. But we like to hear, boy, you're really good at this. And so we downplay our abilities for the purpose of getting attention. That's not humility. 
I don't know what word you want to put to it, but it's self-centering. It's self-glorifying. It's not humility. Humility is to see yourself objectively. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Don't put yourself more centered than you really are. But look at yourself with sober judgment, with humility. Be objective. What is my ability? What is my position? What is my role? Right? Let's take the elders as an example. If the elders were to act like, oh, as an elder, we can't have, we can't have perspective or opinion or, you know, that, that's a, a leader doesn't, you know, we're supposed to be servant leaders. We're not supposed to do these things. We're supposed to, you know, we're, we're supposed to not be seen. We're, we're supposed to, well, I know that sounds weird, but I know a lot of leaders, elders who do that. They act like they haven't actually been put in the role to lead. Now, leading doesn't mean looking at people and saying, now you better do it this way. Leading means here's where we're going. Now, let's all go there together. But frequently, I've seen elders say, well, that's not my role to know where we're going. It's not my role to, to do some of these things when really it is. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but with sober judgment, objectively look at your role and what you are supposed to do and who you're supposed to be. That's what humility is scripturally. But it's easy for us to get that mixed up. We walk in a manner worthy of our calling by being humble, thinking and seeing ourselves as we truly are. Sinners saved by grace who walk along on this journey with other sinners saved by grace. Which means I'm going to fail and you're going to fail. And when I fail, you're going to help me up. And when you fail, I'm going to help you up. Galatians chapter 6 says that we are to bear one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. Carry that for somebody else. When they're struggling, help them carry it. doesn't mean carry it for them, but it means to help them carry it. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling with humility. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling with gentleness. Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 gives us a picture of our Lord. And he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest. So if we're to copy Christ and he says that he is a gentle being, then we ought also be gentle beings. Now gentleness, we sometimes think, means something different than it means. Gentleness means that he's not demanding beyond what his people could do. But he also made a whip out of cords and drove people out of the temple, flipping tables over and ruining people's income because what they were doing was wrong. So you have to keep those in tension, right? It's not this gentleness that allows for anything to happen. It's a gentleness that says, I am never going to put more burden on the people around me or my followers in Christ's case than they're able to carry. And then when it feels like too much for us, we go back to the bear one another's burdens. Now we help each other carry this. But we also see in uh, Peter writes that we are to respond to one another with gentleness. Not only to each other, but to the world at large. Respond with gentleness in everything that we do. So it's not just a gentleness in that I'm not going to overburden you. It's a gentleness that I'm not going to try to crush you with my words. Because we can do that. 
So to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, we're going to be humble people. To walk in a manner worthy of our calling, we're going to be gentle people. To walk in a manner worthy of our calling, we're going to be patient people, long-suffering people. People who, when it comes time to do things, we aren't in a rush. Psalm 37, 7 says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. In what circumstance? Fret not yourself over the ones who prosper in his way, the one who prospers in his in his way over the man who carries out evil desires. When it says that someone prospers in his way, it means not the Lord's way. This is the guy who's ripping you off. This is the guy who's deceitful and making a mint while doing it. We see so many of those people, and for for us who are trying to live by what God calls us to do and how he calls us to be, we feel like we're, we're losing out because they're getting ahead by wrong actions. But don't fret about that. A, if we go back to Psalm 27, or 73, if we go to Psalm 73, we can read about what happens in the end. David is worked up over the ones who are getting ahead by all the wrong ways, and God says, but they will come to the house of the Lord, and they will stand before my judgment. In the end, they don't actually get ahead. But we are to wait patiently on God's working. That's what it means to be patient. We wait, we want to see God do something, and we wait. We're patient for him to act, for him to move, so that we can follow in suit. So as we wait on God, or as we engage with God, we are patient We also bear with one another in love. So not only are we patient in God, we're patient with each other. What does it mean to bear with one another in love? It means to accept that somebody else might not grow at the rate and pace that I want them to. They might not change perspective at the rate or pace that I want them to. But as soon as I say that, what I've recognized is I've said twice what I want them to which when we don't bear with one another in love, we re-centralize ourselves and say it's got to be the way that I want it in the manner and mode and time that I want it, which is not putting Christ's center and it's not bearing another, one another's burdens and it's not showing the type of love that we are supposed to. So to walk in a manner worthy of our call, we have to be humble, gentle, patient with God, patient with each other, and eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, before we move into that, let's just read this next section. Listen to the word one. This is verses four and five and six. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And if I counted that right, it's seven. Still learning the count four to this hand bit. But I think I got to seven. So in three verses, as he talks about that which, which is central to us, it's all about the one, not the many, the one. And that doesn't mean the one as in individuals. <clears throat> Western culture, American culture has a tendency to take that and say it's about us as individuals. It is, but it's not. This is about God as a singular unit, a singular entity. 
everything about him. There's only one faith. There's not many. Remember, they're talking to a pluralistic society. All roads lead to Rome, literally, because most of them were trying to go to Rome, and most of the gods were in Rome. Their idea was all roads lead to Rome. No. Paul says there's one faith. There's not many faiths. There's one faith. If it's real, there's one. There's one God, not many. One spirit, one baptism. That's all there is. Now we come back. We are to have unity of spirit in the bond of peace. That means that around the gospel, we are unified, centralized. But it goes beyond that. To build unity requires effort. Nothing in this world joins together, almost nothing in this world joins together easily. It requires energy and effort to make it happen. So how do we build unity? This right here is actually the greatest mode for unity building to start that we can have. And by this, I don't mean the building. I mean the gathering of believers. Why? Why does the gathering of believers build unity? How many people are speaking? One. Now, you may hear different things. If I do my job poorly, people may may take different messages and themes from it if I do my job poorly. But if I explain the word, then even if I've done my job poorly as a speaker, we are all looking at, speaking about, engaging with God's word as we come together. So that as God sends us out to wherever we go during the week, we can bring the reality of Christ there and then come back together to be unified in what we are taught and what we think, what we sing. That's why we're told not to forsake the gathering together of believers. It's at least part of it. So that we don't get isolated. So that we can be unified and not not dispersed. But we would be unified in spirit. And then through the bond of peace. This isn't unified in spirit while this part of the congregation is at war with this part of the congregation. I mean, I know some of you all sit in the same seat every week, but you're not looking at other people and saying, they sit on the left side. What bad people. Right? Get it? Right? (laughs) Sorry. I actually didn't mean that one, but I said it, then I heard it, then I couldn't ignore it. So, back on topic. We're not at war with each other. We are unified in spirit and we have a bond of peace. Now, if you've listened carefully to this, it should sound an awful lot like something you've heard in other passages, right? To, the, the, to, to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, it's humility, gentleness, patience, love. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Don't they start to sound very parallel? Well, they are. They're intended to be. Because if we're going to walk by the Spirit, He's going to make fruit in our lives, and that fruit is going to be the fruit of the Spirit. So if we're walking right, we're going to have the fruit of the Spirit. When we have the fruit of the Spirit, what is the result? 
right? I said we were going to come to the result of all of this. The result is that God gives us gifts, and we need to know what those are. Many of us do, many of us don't. I don't know which is which. But you've been given a gift as a believer. Do you know what it is? We're going to engage with this some way in the next months so that we can, as believers, know what our spiritual gift is. And it will not be just hand a piece of paper to people and say, take a spiritual gifts test. That's a good starting point, but it's only a potential starting point. But it gives us gifts for the purpose of making a result. And what is that result? Verse 15 Rather, speaking the truth in love, we grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. We grow up into him. We don't become him, but we grow up as his body, becoming part of what he's doing, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, when each part is working properly, makes the whole body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The result of walking in a manner worthy of our calling, not as individuals, but as a body, is that we mature. And the only way to get to that maturation is by walking in a manner worthy of our calling, by then using the spiritual gift that God has given to us so that the body can grow. I had this conversation with somebody recently. Most gifts that you're given, if Allison gives me a gift, she gives it to me. That's not very complicated. Who's supposed to use it? Me. For what purpose? My enjoyment. God gives us gifts. Gives it to who? If he gives it to me, he gives it to me. For what purpose? For you. He doesn't give me a gift for me. He gives me a gift so that as we work together, you all, myself included, but you all would be grown and matured. And that is not just isolated to me as the upfront pastor speaker. That's what each one of us is to be to be helping each other grow. He gives you a gift for the people around you. He gives them a gift for the people around them, which includes you. So that we would build ourselves up in love, so that we would mature, so that we would grow, so that we would become like Jesus as we walk in a manner worthy of our call. Not because we're under compulsion, but because as God has changed what is inside of us, a different result comes out. A result of what? A result of humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, and maintaining unity. That's what it means to walk in a manner worthy of our call. And next week, we're going to talk about how to reach that result. What modes has God put in place for us to reach the result of maturity as we walk worthy of him? Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us your son. Thank you for giving us life in you. God, we don't deserve to have you. We don't deserve to be able to walk in a manner worthy of you, but we are so grateful you allow us to. Grant us as your people the strength to follow you, the strength to prioritize you,
the strength to focus on you in all ways, at all times. We do love you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.